Welcome back to In Our Own Defense podcast. Uh, welcome back to another show with Dr. Tarver and I. We have the luxury of having Dr. Ori uh, back with us. This is the part three of this, this great topic where we're discussing racial bias, identity development, and a collective trauma that, um, that we may experience. We talked about the OJ song, For the Love of Money, and they talk about it at, at a certain point. The song says, call it lean, mean, mean, green, almighty dollar. So I always like to look at things from a financial perspective. What is the cost of racism? What does it cost someone to be, have these bias? What does it cost you to have a cog cognitive dissonance when you know a fact and then irrespective of that fact, you live in a space of your own reality. What is the, what is the financial cost of that? And, and I'm concerned, you know, uh, more about it. Last week, you know, we had uh, Doc, uh, Judge Moore on our show. He's a ju Judge Carlos Moore. He's a, uh, he's a uh, judge in Clarksdale, Mississippi. He's a judge in Grenada, Mississippi. And he's also uh, the managing partner of the Johnny Cochran Law Firm, Mississippi Delta. And he's known for getting these massive judgments. Uh, really talented lawyer and judge, jurist. And so uh, I know he's fought a lot against that, that, that flag that you referred to. What has been your experience with, with, with Judge Moore, uh, uh, Dr. Ori? Yeah, we haven't worked together. Um, there was a case down on the coast um, that we had a conversation about, but uh, we didn't pursue that case together. Um, I've been operating separate in an academic way. Um, and, you know, I, I, he filed a lawsuit, filed a couple of lawsuits, to try to you know bring the flag down, and in one lawsuit he was actually in um, an African American, very progressive judge, and I don't know if you can say progressive for an impartial position, but um, you know you can look at Judge Carlton Reeves, you can look at his um, opinions, um, which are scathing as it relates to white supremacy. Uh, we've had an incident where <clears throat> these white um, teenagers came over to Jackson and they ran over um, a man because he was black. And they basically said, we we're gonna go over and kill some ends. And this happened, you know, in the late, you know, 2017, 2015, somewhere in there. So anyway, um, he brought the, the case forward in federal court. And, you know, the judge had to dismiss it because he found no grounds for injury. Uh, now, Attorney Moore was arguing that the flag injured him because you know, he said his EKGs went up now. I don't know if anyone's ever used that phrase. <laughs> but, you know, his heart rate increased, his blood pressure increased. Um, and that was his point that, you know, this has harmed him to have to go into a courtroom when he sees that flag. So for me, someone who left this state specifically because of the flag, um, you know, it's, it's traumatic you know, regardless of what definition we give trauma, I know that it was traumatic, you know. Um, and so in 2001, April 17, 2001, I remember like it was yesterday, uh, I actually have a flag, I have a, I have a, a, um, a placard, one of those signs that says, you know, support the flag or something. I have it because I snatched it out of someone's yard. Yeah, you know, I, I was really that enraged that, you know, we went on a night raid to take signs out of folk yard. Um, and so I was about to lose it. Uh, I remember going on to the town 
on Square in Oxford, and uh, there was a guy who had a shirt, frat shirt that had a Confederate battle symbol on it. And I put my nose in the back. Now I'm teaching at the University of Mississippi, and you know we had a few beverages before we went out, and that escalated. And so you know I, I realized right then, you know I need to get out of here. And so I actually one day was running around campus, and I look up, and there I notice a Confederate graveyard. I had never seen that graveyard in the time that I spent at the University of Mississippi. I actually lived across from there when I was in grad school. Never saw any of the little flags, you know, in the cemetery, um, you know, that were on the graves. Uh, and then I ran a little further and I saw a little monument, not a monument, but a marker that basically says Nathan Bedford Forrest was here. It didn't say that. But it was Nathan Bedford Forrest, founder of the Klan. But he was a part of the Civil War. And so that's what they were acknowledging, recognizing, because they actually were on that campus, some ambulatory service. But either way, I just saw that flag vote. The university is named Old Miss, which is the older mistress on the plantation who was married to the older master. And so when I would teach class, you know, I would just have to say, look, this university is named after the master's wife. And so you, you have to know why black people don't appreciate that term. So let me put it to you like this in football terms. If we were at a football game and they announced the team and they said, Coach Tuberville and the rest of the, not old Miss Rebels, but the rest of the mass of Rebels, if they named it after the man, and then they, you know, it, it sunk in. Now, they looked at me kind of strange when I said it. Um, but I left. And you can see how passionate I am about this. I, I left. And then when I came back, you know, there was still this fight. And I just didn't have the strength. I'd written four publications maybe on it. And then I, I pick up where I left, given that Attorney Moore's filing this lawsuit. And I'm thinking, you know, this is the opportune time to do the research where we look at how do black people respond when they see that flag. And so we have a series of images similar to what we do with the police study, where they look at the Confederate flag symbol, whether it's on somebody's shirt or simply on top of the Capitol, and we see how they respond. And very similarly, black people who had a strong, you know, linkage to other black people responded more, meaning that it bothered them more um, relative to other people. Uh, and so for me, I think if there is a chance to show harm or injury, which is what the court said, he actually tried to, you know, get cert to the Supreme Court um, and they didn't allow cert for it. If there is a way to show harm, which the court said he didn't show injury nor harm, or prove it rather, this may be an avenue. And I, I don't know. You know, just like Dr. Tarver talked about earlier, when you go into a sympathetic chronic mode, when you have to see that flag when you go to work every day and it is waving above your building, then that's chronic. And so for someone like me, I'm lucky that Jackson State does not fly the flag. 
But because I'm so passionate about it and it really angers me, then, you know, that could continue. And even you can feel it in your heart. You know, that could actually, you know, have these health implications that trauma has. And so when you look at trauma, you can make comparisons. For example, the DSM-5, when we talk about PTSD, talks about avoidance. You know, a lot of times I won't go near the Capitol. And, you know, I'm glad that I don't have to pass through there. And if you just look at some of those PTSD criteria, the flag, there are examples where um, exposure to the flag could very well fit under PTSD and other forms of trauma. Well, I think that's, you know, I think that's interesting. I, I, I definitely can find analysis in the pain and suffering, um, as it were, that, that I can see from a psychological standpoint. If people, unfortunately, a lot of people still aren't there yet on understanding the real value of the psychological injury. You could be psychologically injured forever. I mean, literally, when I was a kid, and I just did not understand the concept of the Kirk Academy, private, white-only, back then, white-only school in my hometown of Grenada, Mississippi. And I didn't understand why that was even a possibility for having tax dollars to build a road to go out that way. Uh, and I know some dollars went to gassing the buses to be able to, you know, to fund some of the food. I did not understand how you could even use tax dollars for that. And I, 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 I addressed this with a teacher when we were talking about it. That kind of trauma is put into her where she now feels superior to me, as a, not just because of her, uh, her intelligence and degrees and all of that as a teacher, but she felt she was on a different pedestal to me. And so she didn't even have to broach my question with a response. She, you know, she was above reproach. Who, how dare you ask me a question about why these things are existing? They just exist. How dare you ask me about why is this Confederate uh, um, um, statute and monument in the heart of downtown Grenada that we all have to go visit by the courthouse, by City Hall? Why is it here and why is it not down? That is done to intimidate me and I'm intimidated every day, psychologically I'm intimidated, emotionally I'm intimidated. And these, these manipulations hurt. They have a pain that says, I'm never going back to live there. And I won't go back until that flag is gone. You know, I, I, I just can't go back. Imagine the trauma that you have as a National Guard soldier, whereas to, they used to wear that flag when they were on state duty. Now, how's an African-American? going to put a flag on where you already articulated in the first segment that the real reason that Mississippi succeeded from the union was because they wanted to protect their ownership interest in other human beings, particularly ones that look like us. And so that was the only reason that they succeeded from the union. It wasn't about some old foolishness. You're not going to have these, you know, we're not going to strike any nerves and have these ancillary conversations. Hard truth, this is the reason why they did it. So it, it, those are some examples of what it does. And, and measure, measure people's rate. What is your heart rate when you go in and have to pass by that sign? You can get the physical, the psychological, the emotional, mental, and you'll get all of those distressing things to get numbers that can tell you why that's some causes. And I love for you guys to do that. 
uh, because we already studied that, that not just the mental, but the mental can then cause physiological pain. And that's what, you know, stroke and, and the ability that the heart is not, the oxygen is not getting there, not getting sleeping like Dr. Tarver saying. So I think there's some fear there to it. But another way that I wanted to look at the money, that long, that lean, mean, green, is I looked at one thing. The NFL did $14, uh, $14 billion in revenue last year. That's what a big, $14 billion in total revenue. All the sales and the shirts and the this. And then I know they have to put out a lot of money in paying salaries, but 14 B billion. NASCAR is getting $6.6 billion over the next 10 years. Uh, the SEC last year, the Southeastern uh, Football Conference, Southeastern Conference All Sports, made $721 million in revenue, and these schools made $45.3 million. These are real numbers big numbers, big dollar numbers. Now NASCAR has come out and said, you cannot have this Confederate battle flag anywhere at any of the races, on, on the grounds at all. And uh, some guy says he was leaving. Everybody was like, who are you? We didn't, they didn't even know who he was when he, when he, he said he was going to leave the race. Uh, so much so that even the National Football League has done a 180 where the, the – uh, now the um, Roger Godell is saying that he's encouraging teams to to uh, sign or uh, take a shot at Colin Kaepernick, who really I think was the catalyst for really kicking us off. It's just been a long time coming, and we needed to see a bright and shining star to stand up and kneel uh, to bring this real attention. Uh, to this obvious issue that nobody was going to address. Michael Jordan has promised, you know. Uh, millions, a hundred million dollars uh, toward this effort. Uh, companies are coming out making their stands. Uh, Starbucks saw the, the fantastic backlash and one day they changed their stance. A lot of it is mouthpiece, a lot of it is movement because they don't understand that this, this, I believe in my heart, that this one is different, that this effort is different because the people are saying enough is enough and we're not gonna stop. We're in a position to be able to do it, unfortunately, COVID-19, but we're in a position now to con consistently keep this effort to the forefront, and we're not going to ever back down uh, because it will keep happening if we ever back down. Um, and so what I want to know is what racial, bi racial bias, you know, this, this, this cognitive dissonance that we talked about, this collective trauma that we're experiencing, what's the cost of it financially? If companies now say, like the SEC is telling Mississippi, that if they don't end the, the Mississippi state flag with the Confederate battle emblem in it, then they're not going to have any events um, in the state of Mississippi. What are your thoughts on all of that? I know it's a lot to unpack. Yeah, so I'll just um, tackle the last portion of that with respect to potential implications on uh, Mississippi State and University of Mississippi and the other schools um, that are in the NCAA. But right now, it's about the SEC. I think the NCAA had some type of um, stipulation where there were certain um, postseason um, games that could not be played in Mississippi. There was a loophole, and that was baseball was not included. <clears throat> now, baseball is the only one, actually, other than, other than basketball, where, you know, it would have impacted um, 
where the NCAA rule would have had an impact. Because baseball, you have University of Mississippi, Mississippi State, and Southern Miss who have, you know, very good baseball programs. And you do see the regional play there. Uh, in fact, this is a little uh, off topic, but I remember when Oklahoma, I believe, came in to play Mississippi State, and they were using all these epithetes, you know, um, N-words. Uh, and this was not long ago, and the guy mooned him um, because he just couldn't take it. He was an African-American center fielder. Uh, but the point in terms of economic uh, backlash, we've been going through this since 2001 at least. Uh, when, you know, folk were saying, you know, why would you keep the flag when you know it's going to have an impact? Well, <clears throat> years later, they did an analysis, and it did not have an economic impact. Um, you know, it's business as usual. We have these episodic events that take place, and, you know, people emotionally respond. For example, when, you know, you had the incident in uh, South Carolina, um, at the uh, Emmanuel Baptist Church where, you know, Dylan Roof went in and massacred nine parishioners you know, at a prayer meeting. Um, our majority leader for the House, um, Representative Gunn, came back and said enough is enough. You know, he essentially was guilty, conscious, and he wanted to repent, so to speak and bring the flag down. Now, when the legislative session came around, couldn't hear a word. You didn't hear a word. And so business as usual, it went through whatever committee as it goes through every year when Brian Clark introduces the bill to get rid of the flag, and it, it, it dies. Likewise, this was a, if there is an opportunity for to be brought down by an institution such as the legislature, this was it. We had a march about two weeks ago led by a brilliant young woman, young man from Murrah High School, 17 years old. They brought together at least 5,000 people, I would imagine, uh, to do a, a, a peaceful uh, rally. And so, you know, you think that people are kind of, I mean, you hadn't seen that ever in Mississippi. Um, since Freedom Riders or something, you know. But you would think that this is the impetus, if you will, that would bring the flag down. Now, I say episodic because this is another just episode where people's emotions are high. But when you look at the survey, and it's essentially tied 49-47 or 48-47 in terms of keeping or getting rid of the flag. However, there's a 9% difference, or there's a 9% group of people who are undecided. Now, as it relates to uh, survey analyses, when you have these polarizing issues, you're not gonna be undecided on the flag. <laughs> you either support it or you oppose it, and it's typically very strong. That 9%, supports that flag. And so when you add that 9% to whether that's 47 or 48%, now you got a majority that's gonna be in opposition to a new flag. Um, you have to take that in consideration. So if the legislature doesn't bring it down, like it was brought down on the Gulf Coast 
in one of those cities, it's not going to come down. And so the lieutenant governor recently put it in a committee that there's no way it's going to come out. The probability of it coming out of that committee is like two, three, four percent. It had a greater chance of coming out of committee had it gone to the committee it normally would have gone through. But the point here is that, you know, the lieutenant governor doesn't see money. I mean, this is culture. This is what, when you talk about heritage, you know, Mississippi lost the battle, but they won the war. So the oppression that black folks go through in this state, uh, the continued supremacy that exists is very comparable to being enslaved and the convict, convict leasing program and so on and so forth. If you go back and just look at like the salaries and the wealth and, you know, the the, 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 the poverty that persists, so on and so forth. We got a lot of money, and this is away from the flag, but it's a structural issue. We turned down the money for Medicaid. I mean, the amount of money that we could have gotten to this city, um, to this state rather, would have changed quite a bit. Um, you know, whether it be the Affordable Care Act, <laughs> you know, what we could have benefited from that. Uh, but because this is such a, you know, bright red state who, whose focus is on conservative attitudes, which is to maintain the status quo, we can't get past the culture and heritage to move forward. And that's why we continue to be, you know, one of the poorest states in the in the union. Um, but you know, I don't think that, in terms of economics related to the SEC's decision in baseball, baseball is not football here. So you're not going to get the great support that you get from football. People can't do without football here. Men, women, they can't do without football here. So this is not going to affect football. Now. Mississippi State University, Mississippi and Southern, um, they've had good programs. This is only applied to Mississippi and Mississippi State. They've had good baseball programs and they've gotten the regional, you know, games there. But you're talking about in Oxford and Starkville. That's where they actually benefit, not the state. So that means that people across the state, if you had a vote, you know, they're not really concerned about baseball nor Oxford or Starkville. So that economic backlash it, it it won't hit and it won't have an impact in my opinion but now let's take it to a broader you know outside the the concept of mississippi um because i even asked judge moore i was like with all of your talent why are you still in mississippi but but if we look at it on a on a broader scale and not just as it relates to the mississippi flag do you the confederate battle emblem altogether which is a a sign of a clear sign of racism. It is equal to the swastika, if not worse, because it is still in this country and so pervasive. Uh, you wouldn't let people come and just start swinging the swastika at an NBA game. I mean, because, you know, these are black folks, but you wouldn't let them do it. You clearly wouldn't let them do the, the, the Confederate battle flag at an NBA game. Uh, and, and you're highly unlikely to let people do it in the, uh, in the NFL, right? You would, 
you would escort them out. This is not that. This is not that kind of place. You know, free speech, whatever. But this is going to be exactly. Uh, you're going to be uh, exited out. What do you think on a bigger scale when this corporate, uh, this corporate energy is saying that, or do you think it's just a bunch of mouthpiece? Like you know, people saying, "Oh, we're against racism and all of that foolishness," and it's just, well, you should have always been. Like, there's nothing to speak about or on, and they give these loose, soft, wishy-washy uh, uh, answers. Do you think it's just episodic or just a bunch of lip service? Yeah, <clears throat> as it has happened. And almost all instances where you've had uprisings, you know, unfortunately, uh, uprisings have to take place, violent uprisings, before policy is implemented, proposed and implemented. <clears throat> and so <clears throat> at some point, <clears throat> we'll get away from the moment and we'll gradually get away <clears throat> from the moment. And we'll be back to business as usual. The, the, the question will be whether we can close any of these gaps, which are so pervasive, such as wealth disparities, any of these structural barriers that persist, um, that prevent even today African-Americans from voting, whether it be felony disenfranchised, or whether it be voter ID. It's just so many, um, it's just so many factors that impact black folk, structural barriers, that we be on this call all day, um, you know, whether it be gerrymandering, and I'm speaking from a political science perspective now, um, whether it be um, advancements or promotions on the job, when you have degrees and, you know, the folk at the manufacturing factor, uh, the manufacturing, uh, the manufacturing company or factory, you have these supervisors who don't have any degrees, but then you have a brother or sister there that may even have multiple degrees, but they're working under this person and can't, you know, get a promotion. Um, so on and so forth. I, I don't, it's white supremacy. And that's cultural, that's ingrained so when we talk about this implicit bias, it takes a whole lot to change implicit biases. It's almost hardwired. And so that's why, you know, some people suggest that these implicit bias trainings don't work because you go in there and do a doggone six hour workshop. Yeah, you know, that's about as long as you're going to do <laughs> to keep somebody, you know, engaged in a workshop. Six hours is, is very long. But now you're talking about three, four months to really have any kind of impact. It, it's not going to happen. And it can't. And, so, and well, I, would, I would add that it counters. You're trying to counter life. Like you're trying to counter uh, generational training and teaching. And, and, you know, these kids observe this in their household. They observe that, that they have never had a, you know, an African-American in their home to have dinner with them. They have never, you know, gone to spend time at an African-American's home. They, you know, and then so this, and then pop, pop, some of these grandpas are, are saying these horrible things and our uncles are saying these horrible things. They're observing this in their communities and the churches, the vitriol I would see uh, in some of the white churches uh, versus, uh, uh, 
Barack Obama. I mean, they were talking about him as if he was some sort of pariah or a monster um, in that time. And so it's you're trying to do anti-bias training, anti-racism training, and you're going against their entire inertia when it's been, you know, generations after generations of generations being told that you're better uh, than someone else. And, and you have these institutions like banking and JP Morgan and all of these guys who literally redline you and will give you more money for a car than they'd be willing to give you for an actual home. Uh, and, and, and that's really disturbing. So, but I think, you know, I would beg to differ. I think that there is this, this uh, energy feels different. I've never felt the energy like this before. I've never seen, you know, commitment with dollars. But I think the issue is, is we cannot let go to pedal. Oftentimes, in those episodic ones, people start waning and getting exhausted. We've never had consistent effort of charges brought about. Well, the, these, these aren't convictions yet. We've gotten, it's, it's in their heads like, oh no, you're going to be charged with this crime. Uh, we've seen the firing today of the Brianna Taylor uh, murderer, and hopefully he'll be charged soon uh, through the no-knock warrant where he just kicked in. And hopefully that judge or that magistrate, whoever that hearing officer that gave them the no-knock warrant um, on the wrong person in the wrong house, uh, somebody has to go to jail just on that. You know, that's a, someone lied about that house because that, and the person, because it, that person that they were looking for was in custody. You know, so that's a, that's a grave injustice. So as we continue to see that, I think there's hope there. But again, I, I only said, you know, cautiously optimistic that we got to keep the pressure on for it to not be episodic like you've mentioned. Um, and, and so that's, that's where I would be. Uh, uh, Dr. Tarver, did you have any? Uh, I, I will, so I mean, go back and address something that you both were talking about um, in terms of your experiences with the flag, being in Mississippi, your experiences with teachers, your experience with students, and this notion of racial battle fatigue. And, and that to me is a cost. So you asked about the cost of um, racism and, and this dissonance and um, this bias. And I think that's one of the costs. And of course, the term was first coined in reference to black men um, and your experiences with being demeaned and devalued and this constant uh, running against the wall that uh, Dr. Ori mentioned. When I bring these issues to the forefront, nothing happens. I'm dismissed or discounted. It doesn't seem to have worth and value. And it was then applied to people of color in general in the cumulative trauma that Dr. Ori has been talking about. So now we're stacking this on top of all these other experiences. And, and I think until the cost is similar to the people who have that ideology, because racial identity works that way too. If your ideology is of, of your own group, uh, and that's who you strongly identify with, and, and in this case, particularly white supremacy, then Dr. Ori is right. It is incredibly difficult to change because what are you connecting to? You don't see the other groups of worth and value. So there is no reason for you to change your mind. You don't, you don't see them as human. Um, you don't connect to them in any way as an oppressed group because you're not oppressed. And so the challenge is going to be, how do you get someone who has all the power, who has all the resources, uh, as, he, as Dr. Ori was even mentioning in Mississippi, what do we have to gain? 
so what we can we can work around that you can take your money away we can figure out some other ways to do that because we don't we don't really benefit from that anyway and so until you can get a cost that resonates with them in a way that they connect to us as as human beings or to us as um uh, as other people that live here in the same United States that they reside in, then we're not going to be able to see that change. But the cost for us is still going to be high. Those health disparities, uh, Dr. Ori, when he was on our show the first time, talked about these food deserts. Like our costs are still very high. Our racial trauma that we experience uh, and how it's affecting us, like it, it is, some of us can't even watch the news because we're so afraid that we're going to have nightmares or when to see one more person and this person is going to be be my son or my husband or my daughter or my mother or my grandmother All right so we're struggling uh financially emotionally psychologically um with with being able to to continue to experience this trauma over and over and over again and so one of the questions i would pose is at what point are we going to stop paying so much we're talking about what's the cost uh, in terms of dollars, but what about the cost in terms of not only our lives, but also our mental states? Uh, when is our cost not going to be as high? And I think, you know, when this system changes, I mean, you know, we live in this system and I mean, that's, a, that's just America. That's the American way. Um, Education, I've argued, is one way to change it, but if you don't, so so one thing, and, and this fits, why would I want to change the system if I'm privileged by it? So why do I want to give up my privilege in a zero-sum game where, you know, if, 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 I, if you win, I lose. If I win, you lose. Then if I'm winning, why would I give you an opportunity to win when that's going to impact me or my kids? And so that keeps the oppressed oppressed. And so they continue to have to pay for that oppression, whether it be through hard work and labor, regardless if you, I mean, I don't care how many degrees you get, you come back to Mississippi, um, you know, there's not many jobs you're going to get with those degrees, regardless of whether or not you qualify, unless, for example, you go into private practice as a lawyer, uh, and that's getting extremely difficult now because it's being oversaturated. But it, I don't want to say that there's no hope, but black people are disillusioned. I'm disillusioned. You know, we, we have this hope. We have this hope. We see this particular, what I call an episodic event happen, and then unless unrest continues to happen that puts pressure on the system that when the next killing takes place regardless of what state it's in that we have this same applied pressure when that pressure relaxes we're going to be back to business as usual um, these companies can't afford to dole out whatever x amount of dollars as we saw with the federal government being able to get these stimulus checks they can't get reparations, but they can get these stimulus checks that were huge, $1,200 for X number of millions of people, and they talk about doing it again. That tells you how much money we have. Uh, but the cost for black folks, I mean, I don't know how you get rid of it in a white supremacist 
society. Um, you know, I, I hate to I hate to resign to that as a fact, or I hate to yield, or whatever the the language I should be using. Um, but I just I'm just disillusioned. Um, I, I you know even when we talk about the disparities between HBCUs and traditional white institutions here in Mississippi, uh, we had a lawsuit: Ayers versus Fordyce, Ayers versus uh, Elaine originally, and we got $538 million to go to the HBCUs for past redress. In other words, past discrimination for not funding us the way we should be funded. You look at the, the farmers and the black farm cases where, you know, they wouldn't fund or they wouldn't give black folks loans where they would give white folks loans and they could maintain during the years where they had droughts, but black people couldn't. And the bank deliberately did not give them those loans so that they could take that land. Uh, that's a whole nother discussion when you look at 98% of the farm land that black folks own in this country has dwindled down now. It's dwindled down by 90, 98%. Um, so they're not gonna incur costs. So they're not gonna <laughs> incur costs. They're gonna keep the costs for us to bear. I mean, they have offsprings that they're not going to create an environment where they have to compete. <laughs> I mean, you know, if you give someone the opportunity to compete, that's why, you know, in sports, and this is getting a little away from it, but in sports, you got 11 people on 11. And that's why it's dominated now by black folks because they can actually compete head to head and everybody in that stand can see. But when you start going to these businesses, you don't have folks holding people accountable um, or it being transparent when people have talents um, that they could actually bring to the table that would benefit the, 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 the institutional business as a whole with their talents. I mean, it's, it's just, it's, 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 it's white supremacy and there's really nowhere around it. Um, and, you know, they can, you know, allocate X number of dollars now but unless we keep having these uprisings, I don't think, you know, I think this is the only pressure that's been applied and they're responding. And there's some research out there that supports that, that during times of uprisings is when these policies have actually gone into effect going back to the 60s. Yeah, no doubt. And, and I definitely agree. And, and in closing, I, I would definitely say uh, that you have some valid points and that's a valid experience uh, as it relates to uh, feeling as if, it may be just episodic and it may be um, um, uh, an effort of futility. I would caution you to see it this, this way. There's been other examples of the win, right? There's other examples of the David versus Goliath, whereas to the small David wins, the less resource David wins. There's opportunities where, where the Goliaths change their mind. Well, I'm a 23-year veteran of the United States Army, and there's examples of this that has happened continually with the United States. So at the, except, in, in the inception of when this country uh, first kicked off, you know, in 1776, when the British surrendered, the much superior uh, naval power, much superior fighting effort, when the British surrendered in, uh, in, um, um, in Yorktown, Virginia, when they surrendered there, when Cornwallis surrendered, he surrendered because 
there were some African-Americans along with General um, uh, Lafayette, the French general, used these African-Americans, contraband as it were, and they came and they flanked, and that's what allowed the, the other forces, the continental forces there, to go in and fight. So America, these African-Americans have been there and paying these costs that Dr. Uh, Tarver's talking about. The 54th Massachusetts and the plenty of other African-Americans that fought in the Civil War to help save this union, the, uh, the constant effort and giving that we have, we have to take that kind of spirit and be willing to fight. It has to be that, hey, I'm willing to do it with my life. One of the things that we did when we raised our right hand to join the army, you raise your right hand and say, I will defend this country against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And what is understood subject of that, I will, is I will do it, albeit with my life. The issue is we cannot continue to live in a space where life living is more important than the life that we're preparing for. Our children are making a way for our future. When we live in a space that we're so, it's an effort of fertility, it's just not, there's no way that we can do it. There is, number one, international community, we have to live in a space of speaking certain things monolithic. Take the United Nations out of the United States and then hold the United States accountable for the atrocities and injustices that it's doing in our institutions. We can't just let the military speak to it. We have to hold the military accountable. We have to hold these PWI institutions accountable for doing the things that they're doing. How do you hold the military accountable? We now start looking at, there's two seminal researches that have come out. The Army has admitted that there's racial bias in administration of justice and the United Form, uh, Uniform Code of Military Justice, a great research that came out with that. And the Air Force had just recently dropped one out that says that. So you now have to hold these institutions accountable when you have the ability to do it. So in this wave, if there is a vote wave that, that shifts the trajectory of what Congress looks like, you have to use Congress and the, white, and the executive uh, uh, power to enforce real deal changes that said this can't happen. On a congressional level, you can tell a state that is just a violation of their constitutional rights. They're, they're, uh, the, the 1983 Act, you know, where you can sue someone for 1983, when they're using this to violate your Fourth Amendment rights uh, and, and, your, uh, and your 15th Amendment rights, uh, we can look at that in, in 14th Amendment and the uh, uh, Fourth Amendment rights. So when we, when we go in and look at those, there's some ways that we can systemically do it. So internationally, then on a national effort, and then the, the local effort, the statewide effort, that may be weaker. It may be, uh, uh, but we have to do it in, in incremental phases. Right now, we're getting judges that are put on the benches that are uh, very conservative, and they're young, and so they're going to have these, these values forever. But if we can get the, the turn on the tide at the Supreme Court level, like we, the Supreme Court surprisingly is very, is very close to being in favor of a shift. We just did it with the Louisiana and Oregon case where they uh, said you have to have a unanimity of jury. Uh, so you have to do it internationally, nationally, judicially, and then you have to come back with the local. But that's why we have to have a, a certain things have to be monolithic. Well, I want a safe place to live. We don't want to have police killing us unarmed. We don't want to, you know, we, and we don't just want to matter. We want to thrive. Black people want to thrive. This ain't black people matter. This is Juneteenth. We're free, not free-ish. This is Juneteenth. We're declaring our own independence, and we have to start being dependent on certain things that are mutual, uh, like certain things are guaranteed. You know, if we keep wanting to run away from each other and live in other people's neighborhood, we're going to keep overpaying for houses and not have any wealth to transfer to our kids. 
if we want to keep not living in these spaces in Jackson, that's what's going to, like, until we say collectively, I love you, you, I love you, and I'm going to, that's what's going to empower us to be around each other, live in a space. These unconscious biases can come down. These subconscious bias, these racial bias that we have within us. So I believe I have that hope. While I know it may seem daunting, I still have that hope that we may be able to get through it. And so uh, I know we can keep going for another two hours on this show. <laughs> but I know this third part has to come to a close. Uh, so this has been uh, In Our Own Defense Podcast, discussing racial bias, identity development, and collective trauma. I want to uh, give our, our great guest, Dr. Ori, an opportunity uh, to, to close this out and tell us something before I bring it to you, Dr. Tarver. Uh, how can our, our people get in touch with you, Dr. Ori? What are ways that our uh, listeners and viewers can, can reach out to you? Yeah, you can reach out to me via email, um, Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, period, D as in dog, period, O-R-E-Y, at J-S-U-M-S dot E-D-U. That's byron.d.ori at J-S-U-M-S dot E-D-U. Good deal. Uh, are there any new books that or, or writings that we could be experiencing? That, that's, there's a site where we could get all of your writings, right? Yeah, the University of Nebraska has um, quite a bit of them. Um, there is one piece, and, you know, there's so many topics that, you know, I'm working on and, and that have to be covered, and I get stymied, but there's one piece that should be coming out within the next two months, and that is on African Americans' emotional and physiological responses to the Mississippi State flag. Uh, so that should be coming out. It's an academic piece, but my intention is moving forward is to translate these academic pieces into lay pieces where the average person, not the average person being the person who reads the New York Times, uh, but just the average person. And I can code switch. Uh, so I try and write sometimes where, you know, I talk, my talk, <laughs> and, you know, the average person I associate with can figure out. One time my cousin said, when I posted something on hair texture and colorism, it was an academic piece. He said, now, can you make that where we can read it? <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to have to look, you know, we'll be having a blog, uh, um, a website, where I'm going to try and take all the work I've done and translate it. Uh, I don't say dumb down. I say translate. And, you know, people have to realize as, as an academic, you don't ask a doctor to, um, I mean, you have to, you have to conduct the research in a very rigorous way. And that entails having to infuse a lot of this jargon to have that intellectual discourse uh, to get to as much of the truth, if you will, what some people say is relative, but the facts. And you have to do that sometimes with statistical analyses and so on and so forth. But if you can't explain it to your mother, you're not doing a good job. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's true. And, I, you know, I really appreciate that. And we definitely look forward to uh, this new piece uh, and the, that impact physical, physiologically and emotionally uh, about that, that, that flag, as it were, in Mississippi. Uh, Dr. Tarver, another great show. And what would you like to add to close this out? I know we made a lot of references to some research and some books, and so I um, 
Uh, I know that we often don't go back and, and tell people what we were talking about, uh, but the post-traumatic post slave syndrome that Dr. Ori was talking about, um, I probably had in my office somewhere, uh, is a book that is, is frequently referenced. Uh, our guest a couple of weeks ago, uh, Dr. Miriam Jernigan and Noesi, like her website, Jernigan and Associates, uh, LLC, they have some good resources on trauma as well. Uh, and, and I do think it's important for people also to, if they want to learn more about police violence, there's mapping for police violence, that they can go and kind of look at this information. Dr. Ori said the first time he met with us that education is an important part of this, this journey. And I do believe that to be true, that the more people are educated, the more they can understand what we're experiencing so that we can get people to uh, create uh, opportunities to be connected on the fact that we're all human beings, then that can help us move this plight on a little further. So I just wanted to mention those things. Well, um, I, I think, um, you know, um, the gloves are about to come off with Dr. Ori and I, uh, our in-state uh, go, but it is, it is daunting uh, that we're still experiencing this in this day. Uh, I really appreciate this high level of, of discourse that I think that we've had today. I hope our listeners have taken us away. Uh, make sure you read uh, Implicit, Implicit Bias, among Police, a System of Bad Apples by Dr. Ori uh, and Mr. Perilou, uh, Pay, uh P. Um, so make sure you get the chance to you, you, you un unpack that, read through that. It's a lot of great resources to really um, explain this to you through an objective uh, offer of the systemic impl uh, implicit bias. Um, and also, also check us out on Instagram at In Our Own Defense. And you can check us out on YouTube, on our YouTube channel at In Our Own Defense. And our new Facebook uh, page, it, it's doing very well. Go ahead and like it. Uh, tell your friends to like it. Share it as much as you want. We're putting all of these on that at uh, In Our Own Defense. And then you can always email us at inourowndefense at gmail.com. Uh, this has been another episode of In Our Own Defense, where we discuss uh, racial biases and how this ultimately leads to this collective trauma. Uh, this concludes this episode of in our own defense, where we've had our great guest on here, Dr. Ori. And on behalf of Dr. Tarver and I, thank you for listening, and thank you for tuning in and watching. Have a great day.